Part Five of Century of the Sky by Evelyn E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Century of the Sky, Part Five. And so Clary went back to Earth on the staff ship. Once its luxury would have given him pleasure. Now the cabin with its taps that gave out plain water, salt water, mineral water, and assorted cordials held no charm. Neither did the self-contained tri-dye projector receiver. The only reason he stayed there most of the time was to avoid the others. However, he couldn't avoid turning up in the dining salon for meals. The greater his sorrow, the greater his appetite. One day after lunch, Hans stopped him forcibly, grasping his arm. "'I've got to talk to you. Afterward you can go off and sulk if you want to. But we're going to make planet fall in a few days. It's necessary to discuss your future now." "'I have no future,' he said. "'Come this way, Clary. That's an order.' Obediently he followed her into a lounge that was a dazzle of color and splendor. There were eight pseudo-windows, each framing a pseudo-scene of a different planet at a different season. The harsh barren summer of Mars, the cold bleak winter of Kassud, the gentle green spring of Earth. It must be a park, he knew. In no other place on earth could spring be manifest, and yet it gave him a little pang to look at it. He tore his eyes away to turn them toward the others, and then up at the domed ceiling, fashioned to resemble a blue sky with clouds drifting across it. A domed ceiling. And he thought of the domes of Demorlin, light years away among the stars. I'm afraid the decor's a bit gaudy. Han apologized. We didn't check the decorator's past performance until it was too late. But it's comfortable anyway. Try one of these chairs. They accommodate themselves to the form." She threw herself on a chaise long that accommodated itself perfectly to her form. She wasn't wearing her usual opulent secretarial garb, but something simple of clinging stuff that occasionally went transparent. So we're back to the first movement, Clary thought wearily. He made sure that the chair opposite her was old-style before he lowered himself into it. Where's the general? I thought he always sat in on these conferences. The formalities are over now, she said, smiling up at him. Besides, she added, if he doesn't take a nap after lunch it wreaks havoc with his digestion. Afraid to be alone with me, Clary? she asked huskily. Yes, he said, rising. As a matter of fact, I am, now that you mention it. She sat up. Sit down. He sat down. She didn't recline again. Her dress went opaque, but her voice grew silken once more. Listen, Clary, I don't want you to think we're cheating you out of anything we promised. Even though you stayed only five years, you're going to have it all you'll have U.E. status. What do I want that for?" Doesn't it mean anything to you any more, Clary? It used to mean a lot, though you denied it even to yourself. Did it? He forced his thoughts back through time. I suppose it did. But I've changed. You know, those five years on Demorland seem like—like like a lifetime, she finished. Couldn't we dispense with the clichés? On de Morlin, the things I said were fresh and interesting. On de Morlin, I was somebody pretty special. 
I'd rather be a big second-hand fish in a small primitive puddle. Isn't there some way?" No way at all, Clary. The puddle's drying up. We've got a nice aquarium ready for you. Why not dive in gracefully?" It was my puddle, he said. I belonged. She closed her eyes and sank back into the chair which arched to meet the arch of her body. Lying down, she didn't look nearly as tall. All right, let's give the whole opera one final run-through. Nobody cared for you on earth. On Demorlin, your friends liked you. Your wife loved you. On earth, you never felt welcome and or appreciated. On Demorlin, you felt both welcome and appreciated. On earth... He was stung out of his apathy. That's right. I'm not saying I'm unique, only that I fitted. How about trying to look at it from another point of view? Did it ever occur to you that, if the Demorlanti accepted you, so might your own people, if you approached them in the same way? Did you ever try to make friends on earth? But on earth I shouldn't have to. They were my own people. Aha! she cried gleefully. I mean, well, General Spano said it would be wrong to stoop to hypocrisy to win the friendship of my own people, that if I did, their friendship wouldn't be worth anything. You can't buy friendship. You bought your Ulleran. Does it play any the worse because you paid for it? Does it mean any the less to you? What you're getting at, he said cautiously, is that that's the way to make friends? By being a hypocrite? Was it a sham with the Damorlanti? He had to stop for a moment before he could bring out an answer. It started out as a sham, but I really got to like them afterward. Then it was real. So then you weren't a hypocrite, Clary. Her voice grew more resonant. Open yourself to people. Show them that you want to be friends. Basically, everybody's shy and timid inside. Like you, he said, casting an ironical glance at her dress. That's still the outside, she smiled, making no move to adjust it. Listen to me, Clary, and don't go off on sidetracks. The people of Earth are your own people. Your loyalties have always been with them. She had almost had him convinced, but this he couldn't swallow. If my loyalties had been with Earth, I would have sent back reports of the trouble. But I didn't. I tried to stop it from happening. There just wasn't anything I could do. The deep probe never lies, Clary. You didn't really try to stop it. She paused and then went on deliberately. Because you could have stopped it, you know, quite easily. There was nothing I could have done, he stated. Nothing. Remember the first time the staff ship came? Just before you left for Barshwat, the woman told you she suspected you were an Earthman. You were afraid for her. Do you remember that? He nodded. Yes, he remembered how terrified he had been then, how relieved afterward, thinking everything was going to be all right. Luckily, he hadn't realized the truth, or he wouldn't have had those extra years of happiness. Han went on remorselessly. And you thought, if only something would happen to you en route, she would be safe. We might guess why it had happened, 
but we couldn't know for sure. We'd have had to start all over again." He couldn't move, couldn't speak, couldn't think. She spaced each word carefully, sweetly. "'You were quite right. Because you were the only man on earth, Clary, who had the particular physical requirements and the particular kind of mental instability that we needed for the job. You just said you weren't unique, Clary. You were too modest. You are. If you'd killed yourself then, your death would have served a purpose. You would have died a hero. Kill yourself now, and you die a coward." But at least I'd be dead. I wouldn't have to live with a coward for the rest of my life. You're not a coward, Clary, she said. You wouldn't admit it, but you are and always have been a patriot. To you, Earth came first. It's as simple as that." She had deep-probed his mind. She must know his true feelings. There was no gain saying that. He could know only his surface thoughts. She knew what lay behind and beneath. And, he reminded himself, at the end the Damorlanti were actually turning on him. Try to think of the whole thing as a course in charm that you've passed with flying colors," she said. It seems rather an expensive way of making me charming," he couldn't help saying, with the last struggle of something that was dying in him, something alien that perhaps should never have been there in the first place. Whole civilizations have been sacrificed for nothing at all. This one will not be sacrificed, only quarantined but its contribution could be of cosmic magnitude. "'Now what are you trying to sell me?' he asked drearily. "'Are you saying that the essence of the Demorlet civilization is going to live on in me, that I carry its heritage inside myself, and so I have a tremendous responsibility to the Demorlanti on my shoulders?' She laughed. "'You're really getting sharp, Clary. If you stayed in the service you could be one of our best operatives but you're not going to stay in the service. Yours is a higher destiny. Here, catch." She tossed him something that glittered as it arched through the air. It was a UE-ident cube, made out in his name. He had only seen them at a distance, and now he was holding one warm and gleaming in his hand, with his name and his face in it. His face. And yet not his face. That's what you're going to look like when the plastosurgeons get through," she explained. They'll pigment your eyes and skin and hair, and they may be able to add a few inches to your height, though I think you actually have grown a little. Something about the air, or more likely the food. Embelsira thought I was handsome the way I was. Embelsira! But Embelsira was light years away. Embelsira was part of a fading dream and he was awakening now to reality. Look at the cube. Look at your status symbol. He looked at it and kept on looking at it. He couldn't tear his eyes away. He was hypnotized by the golden glitter of it, the golden meaning of it. Musician, he said aloud. Musician. A dream word, a magic word. He hadn't thought of it for years but this he didn't have to reach back for. Once touched on, it surged over him, complete with its memories. But she had made it meaningless, too. He managed to tear a laugh out of his throat. 
Spano said I'd be able to buy the Musicians Guild when I had my million and a half. Apparently you've been able to bargain them down." "'This costs nothing except the standard initiation fee,' she told him. "'You came by it honestly, through your music, nothing else. And you have more than a million and a half credits, Clary, nearly ten times that, with more pouring in every day.' She touched a boss on the side of her chair and a white light hazed around them. "'I think we're close enough to Earth to get some of the high-power tri-dyes,' she said, although we can't expect perfect reception." Blurrily a show formed, a variety show. At first it seemed the sort of thing that he remembered dimly, more interesting now because it had almost the character of novelty. Then an ornate young man appeared and it took deeper significance. He was carrying a musical instrument, refined, machined, carefully pitched. He played music on the Ulleran while a trio sang insipid terrestrial words. Love is a guiding star, they called it, but that didn't matter. It was one of the tunes Clary had taped. She touched another boss. The blur reformed to a symphony orchestra, playing as background music to a soloist with another Ulleran. That's your first uterine concerto, she said. There are three more. Another program was beginning, an account of the tribulations of an unfortunate Plutonian family. It faded in to the strains of uterine music, to a tune of Clary's. If they could have endured it to the end, she told him, it would have faded out the same way. Every time they play it, she said, somewhere on earth a cash register rings for you. And this one's a daily program. He watched transfixed and transfigured as program after program featured his music, his Ulleran. Not just on Earth, Han said, but on all the civilized planets, even in a few of the more sophisticated primitive ones. You're a famous man, Clary. Earth is waiting for you, literally and figuratively. There'll be Ulleran orchestras to greet you at the field. We sent a relay ahead to let them know you were coming but his mind was slowly alerting itself. And where am I supposed to be coming from, then, since they're never to hear about de Morland? They've been told that you retired to a lonely asteroid to work, to perfect your art and its instrument. Of course they couldn't divulge the truth about de Morland. It seems a little unfair, though, he said. Why unfair? After all, Clary, the music is yours. You took de Morland's melodies and made them into music. You took their Ulleran and made it into a musical instrument. They're all yours, every note and bladder of them." She reached over and put out a hand to him. "'And I'm yours too, Clary, if you want me,' she breathed. There was obviously no doubt in her mind that he did want her. And in his, too. One didn't reject the Secretary of Space. He took the chilly hand in his. The skin was odd in texture. I'm imagining things, he thought. It's a long time since I touched a human female's hand. I must be a very important musician, he said aloud. She nodded, not pretending to misunderstand. Yes, important enough to rate the original and not a reasonable facsimile. You're a lucky man, Clary. And then she smiled up at him. I can be warm and tender, I assure you." It took him a moment to realize what she meant. For a moment he had that pang again. 
She would never be the same as Embelsira, but a man needed change to develop. He was still troubled, though. I want to do something. Even an empty gesture's better than none at all. The last few months I started putting together a longer thing. I guess it could be a symphony. When I finish it, I'd like to call it the De Morlet Symphony. Why not? she said. He thought she was humoring him, but she added, They'll think you just picked the name from an astrogation chart. In a final burst of irony, he dedicated the De Morlet Symphony to the human race, but as usual, he was misunderstood. In fact, one of the music critics, all of whom were enthusiastic over the new work, wrote, At last we have a great musician who is also a great humanist. Eventually, Clary forgot his original intent and came to believe it himself. The End of Sentry of the Sky by Evelyn E. Smith